Welcome to the Athens First United Methodist Church Sermons Podcast. I'm Kayla Thomason, a member of the communications team. We hope you enjoy this weekly resource. Well, good morning, Athens First United Methodist Church. It is good to be with you on this beautiful first Sunday of the month of August. It is uh, Promotion Sunday here at our church. It is Communion Sunday here at our church. And it is also the first Sunday we get to welcome our choir back after a much-deserved summer break. So, welcome back, choir. And welcome back to any of you who have been away. It is good to be in worship together. This morning, we are in our third week of a series that we started uh, just two weeks ago, we, we've been looking at uh, the four Gospels. And what we've been doing is, is we've been trying to do the impossible, really, because we've been taking them one at a time, and we've been trying to boil them down to their very essence. You know, what is it about Luke that makes him different from Matthew? What is it about Mark that makes him different from John? And what is it that each one contributes to our understanding of the gospel. What is it about each of these four gospels that helps us understand why the good news is so incredibly good? Uh, Two weeks ago, we started with the gospel according to Mark. Uh, Last week, we looked at the gospel according to Matthew. This morning, we continue by looking at the gospel according to Luke. I want us to do that by looking at the first four verses of his gospel. It is his introduction, it's the way he he kicks things off. Pay attention to what Luke says as he introduces us to the good news. We'll start with verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who... From the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I, too, have decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. This is the word of God for the people of God. So back when I was in seminary, the very first job I ever got at a local church was at Briarcliff United Methodist in Atlanta, where they hired me to be their brand new assistant pastor. And as such, there were a number of different responsibilities that came with that. One of the responsibilities was I had to preach around six to eight times every year. Of course, as you can imagine, as the new assistant pastor, I was always given the choicest Sundays on which to preach. Uh, Sundays like the Sunday after Easter and the Sunday after Christmas. I got both uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day. And of course, who could forget Georgia, Florida weekend. In other words, I got to preach on the Sundays when virtually no one else was going to be in worship. I guess they figured I couldn't do that much damage that way. Uh, But nevertheless, I always took my responsibility seriously. Maybe a little too seriously, because I do remember writing those sermons with all the intensity of a doctoral thesis. (laughs) 
I mean, I can't even tell you how many hours I would invest in, in writing these just painstakingly every week, you know, making sure everything was word perfect. Nor can I tell you how many hours the congregation had to endure those early sermons. To be sure, I was a, a very green pastor, and I was very new to this thing called preaching. And I think if there was one mistake I made in those early days, it was the fact that I, I thought, some, for some reason, that I had to prove to the congregation that I was somehow qualified to be standing in the pulpit. That I, in fact, knew what I was talking about, because after all, I had just taken an entire semester on the very subject that I was preaching on, so of course that makes me an expert, right? So to, to prove to the congregation that I wasn't just some big phony up there uh, pretending, um, I decided to do the only thing I could think of to make myself sound really legitimate, really impressive. I decided to use every big theological word that I possibly could think of. And I would just string them all together, one after the next after the next. It was like one big theological word salad. And for whatever reason, I thought that that somehow made me come across as very authoritative to the congregation. In fact, I remember after one particular sermon that I preached, it was on the uh, eschatological significance of the Apostle Paul's Christological hermeneutic. Um, <laughs> it was a good one if you missed it. I, I can remember getting done with the sermon, and I said amen, and we were finished, and I look at the congregation, and I'm telling you, it was dead silent. And I remember thinking, whoa, I rendered them speechless. Uh, but shortly thereafter, I was disabused of that notion because I had the sweetest, kindest, most loving church member come up to me. And he said, Jeremy, can I, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, sure. And he gave me advice that I have never forgotten. Because he said, Jeremy, I want you to know something. When you're in that pulpit, we know that you know what you're talking about. But those of us in the pews, we don't have a clue what you're saying. <laughs> because when you use all of those really big theological words, it's hard for us to not feel like, like a bunch of outsiders looking in. And so here's my advice to you. I would encourage you, he said, to preach in such a way that not a single person would feel left out. Now, I have been given a lot of advice over the years when it comes to ministry, but I don't know that I've ever been given advice that has been more helpful than those words that day. Because what I, I realize now that I didn't realize back then is the fact that I could preach to a congregation until I'm blue in the face. But if that congregation doesn't understand what I'm actually saying to them, well, then it's not going to do a lick of good. If there was ever a gospel writer who understood that, it would have been the gospel writer Luke. Because, you see, back in the first century, a lot of people had heard about Jesus. 
There were a lot of stories circulating. There were sermons that were preached. There were conversations that were being had. And there were even other gospels that had been written about Jesus. In fact, do you know what the most popular gospel in the early church was? It was by far the gospel according to Matthew. In fact, that's why Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, not because it was written first, but because it was so popular with the early church. Now, of course, the only problem with the Gospel of Matthew, as we talked about last week, was the fact that he was the kind of guy who sometimes would write in a kind of insider-type language. Because he was writing to a group of, of Jewish Christians, and so he figured there's no problem with, in writing with, with a lot of Jewish imagery and a lot of Jewish references and a lot of Jewish kind of language. It was a kind of language and, and, and insider kind of talk that his congregation ate up and they, they understood every word. Where it became problematic was for anyone who didn't grow up in a Jewish community. For anyone who didn't understand that kind of language, it's easy to see how they might feel like an outsider looking in. That was especially true, of course, if you were a Gentile or a non-Jewish person, because of course, Gentiles, they didn't didn't like grow up in the synagogue. They, They didn't grow up reading Jewish scripture. These were people who who didn't know Adam from Abraham, Moses from Methuselah. And so you can understand if somebody were trying to, to know more about this person named Jesus. If they had heard about him and they were interested and they said, I want to know more, but then they pick up a gospel that just is kind of written in an insider kind of language. You can understand how that might be frustrating you can understand how they might feel like they were outsiders. This was the world and the culture in which Luke was writing to. Because the one thing that we know about Luke was the fact that he was one of the traveling companions of the Apostle Paul. So like when when Paul, whenever he was on one of his missionary journeys going throughout the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, what we know is not only was Luke with him, but he was also writing everything down. In fact, the account of those missionary journeys, we call that the Acts of the Apostles. And in fact, the entire thrust of the second half of the Acts of the Apostles is all about Paul preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And so Luke said, listen, I want to be a part of this. I want to contribute to this. I want to do something that can help. So what does he do? He decides to write his own gospel. And what is absolutely fascinating about Luke's gospel is the way that he begins his gospel. You heard those four verses read just earlier. They're often referred to as Luke's prologue. And in those four verses, Luke gives us at least three really important pieces of information because he lets us know what he's writing, to whom he's writing, and most importantly, he's telling us why he's writing this gospel. So, you go to verse 3. 
And the thing that you notice that Luke gives, tells us, that the information that he wants to share with us is, here's who I'm writing to. And so he says, I am writing to you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus? Well, this has actually been a source of great debate in the church over the years. There's been a lot of differing opinions on who that might be. Some people have suggested that Theophilus was a a wealthy Gentile benefactor, somebody who commissioned Luke to write the gospel. He said, I want it for myself, so here's a blank check. Tell me what it costs, but I want every word. Could be. Or there are others who say it might not just be one person that Luke was writing to. It could have actually been like a whole group of people because what does the word Theophilus mean in Greek but friend of God? And so perhaps what Luke is writing to is a group of people, anyone who considers themselves to be a friend of God. Who was Luke writing to? We're not exactly sure who Theophilus actually was, but what we do know for absolute certainty is what he was writing to Theophilus. Because from the very first verse, Luke says, now listen, many have undertaken the task of drawing up accounts of all the things that we've heard and all the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. In other words, Luke is saying, I know there are other gospels out there. I know I'm not the first, okay? I know that there are other people who are putting this down on paper. So what makes mine different? He says, it's because I'm carefully investigating it myself. He says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And do you want to know why? It's so that I can write for you an orderly account so that you might know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. In other words, what Luke is saying to this congregation or to this person named Theophilus is this. Listen, I know that there are other stories of Jesus out there. I know that there are a lot of different sources where you can get this material, but what I'm telling you is that this gospel is written by me because I have done the investigating myself. I've done interviews with eyewitnesses. It was me. I went out and did the hard work. And you know why? So that I can write a gospel for you in a way that actually makes sense. I want to write an orderly account for you in such a way that nobody would ever feel like an outsider. I want it to be accessible, and I want it to be understandable. I want it to be something that that just makes sense from page to page. I want this to be something not only that you would read and you would understand, but hopefully you might even make this gospel your own. To say it another way, I think what Luke is doing here is he's writing his gospel in such a way that no one would feel left out. And do you know why I think Luke was so insistent on that? It's because that's exactly what Jesus did throughout his ministry. In fact, one of the central hallmarks of the Gospel of Luke is the fact that Luke is constantly painting Jesus. He's constantly portraying and depicting Jesus as sitting with, interacting with, talking with, conversing with, doing life with people that the rest of society 
wants nothing to do with. In other words, Jesus was always hanging out with outsiders. For instance, do you remember how Luke tells his Christmas story? It's kind of an interesting thing to look back on Luke's narrative because one of the things that Luke does that no other gospel does is he tells us about some unique visitors that Jesus got on the night he was born. He says that when Jesus finally was born on that miraculous night, there was a group of people that were invited to come and meet him for the very first time. He said it was a group of shepherds. Of course, that would have been an odd thing for Jesus to receive as visitors in the first century because shepherds were very low on the social totem pole. Most people wanted nothing to do with shepherds. They were kind of poorly regarded because shepherds were known for letting their sheep graze on other people's land. And so most people didn't like them. Most people didn't want anything to do with them. And yet Luke says they were the very first people to come and to visit the newborn king. In other words, the first people to meet baby Jesus were a group of outsiders. Not only that, but Luke is also the only gospel that gives us one of the greatest parables ever told. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And not only is this one of the beloved stories in church history, it's one that you and I probably know backwards and forwards, but one of the unique things about that story is who does Jesus tell us that the hero of the story is? It's a religious outsider. It is a no-good, good-for-nothing, wretched Samaritan who taught us all what it means to have mercy to someone in need. Not only that, but if you look at Luke 15, one of the greatest chapters of Scripture in the entire Bible, Luke gives us three stories from Jesus that no other gospel gives us. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Now, for centuries, scholars have said that those three stories are considered to be the gospel within the gospel because they tell us about a God who welcomes home even those who are prodigal and lost. But do you know what makes that story even stronger, in my opinion? It's how Luke introduces us to it. Because before Jesus launches into these famous three stories, Luke starts by describing the audience. And who was there that morning? Not a bunch of religious folks. Not his disciples. Not a bunch of teachers of the law. Mm, 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 mm. He says it was a bunch of tax collectors and garden variety sinners. It was a bunch of moral and social outsiders. From the beginning of the gospel all the way to the end, that is the recurring theme of the Gospel of Luke. That Jesus was constantly hanging out with, doing life with people that the rest of society wanted nothing to do with. And the reason why is because he was there to assure them, to preach to them, to let them know that in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as outsiders. That grace is not exclusive that, that it's not meant for just a, a specific group of people. No, 
Grace is for everyone who will receive it. He came to be the Savior of the world. In fact, that's why Luke tells us Jesus' genealogy very differently than the way that Matthew does. Because if you were here last week, one of the things we said about Matthew's genealogy or, or Jesus' family tree is that he starts by tracing Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to, to the father of the Jewish faith, right? But that's not what Luke does. Now, Luke traces Jesus' family tree not to Abraham, but all the way to Adam, the firstborn of all creation, because it's Luke's way of saying that Jesus is the Savior for everyone. I don't know about you, but I feel that that is a, a message that the church cannot hear enough these days. It is something that we need to be reminded of over and over and over again because every time I think that the church is doing a great job, that we're making strides, we're making progress, I hear about someone or some church somewhere that's doing everything they can to keep outsiders out. For instance, years ago I heard a story about a minister who had just been appointed to a new church. It was to a, a large downtown church in downtown Chicago, and he couldn't have been more thrilled to go to such a historic place. Of course, one of the unique things about this downtown Chicago church was the fact that during the day, uh, the streets out front of it were, were filled with, with lots of people and, and tourists and, and, and residents of the city, uh, but at night, it was filled with what we might call ladies of the evening, or I guess another word for it would be prostitutes. Of course, that is a, a sad and unfortunate thing, because you and I both know that that's not one of, those, one of those lines of work that any of us would ever dream of getting into when we're older. No one aspires to that and says, you know what I would love to be when I grow up? I would love to work a street corner. That would just be the best thing, you know? No, we know that a lot of those women find their way there by way of coercion or, or force or trafficking. We know it's, they're forced into it by, by, by things like addiction. And so all of that to say, we know that this is a very sad and unfortunate line of work, and these were the kinds of women that were hanging out in front of the church every single night. Well, on his very first day in the church office. Uh, the minister was unpacking boxes, getting things all said, when all of a sudden he was visited by one of the grand matriarchs of the church about whom he had been warned, uh, because others had let him know that she was a very mm, opinionated personality. She was somebody who, uh, who liked to get her way with things, and, and she felt very entitled to things. She, she was kind of bossy at times, and the running joke in the church was that everyone answered to her, even God. So he was prepared. He was prepared for whatever conversation came his way. He said, before long, I knew exactly why she was there, because she just kind of put it all out on the table. She said, Reverend, by now, I'm sure you've, you've noticed our rather <clears throat> unseemly neighbors that like to uh, occupy the street corner out in front of the church at night 
hard to believe that these terrible women would do such terrible things, such terrible business out in front of our church every single night. She said, it's even come to my attention that some of these women have been finding their way into the church. They've been using our facilities. And can you believe that they have even been found in the sanctuary during worship? And so what I want to know, Reverend, and she stabbed her finger into his chest. She said, what I want to know is, what are you going to do about it? And to his credit, he kept his cool. To his credit, he was very polite because he smiled and he said, now I I have heard about this and and I am aware of these women who have been occupying the street corner out in front of the church. But I want you to know something. I've got a plan. I want you to know that I am going to do something about it. And she said, oh really, what's that? He said, I'm going to go talk to them. She said, you, a minister, are going to go talk to a bunch of prostitutes? He said, yes. And she said, okay, what's the plan after that? And he said, well, it may not happen right away. But in good time, my hope is that I can get them to join the choir. (laughs) I have no idea if he lasted at his new church. But I do know one thing. If he ever got kicked out, he could find a home at the Church of St. Luke. Because that is a church where everyone is welcome. It's a church where grace is extended lavishly. And it's a church where no one feels left out. In other words, it's exactly the kind of church that Jesus calls us to be. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for your good news. We thank you for your gospel, for it is a reminder to us that without grace, none of us would belong here. But because of your love, because of your mercy, because of that amazing grace, you have opened the doors to your church, to us, Indeed, you have even opened the doors to come and to sit at your holy table, to break bread, to take the cup, to partake of a holy meal that reminds us that you love us, that you have forgiven us, and that we are yours. It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To listen to more sermons, read past devotions, or look up opportunities on how to connect, visit us at AthensFirstUMC.org. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following us on Instagram or Facebook at AthensFirstUMC.